Well, how many of you guys like going camping or outdoors at some times? Where do you like going? Um, I like building a fire. Okay, building a fire, like a campfire or just a cooking fire. What about you? What do you like about outdoors? Fresh air, yeah. Anybody like going to lakes or mountains, things like that? <laughs> Smelling the fresh trees, especially the pine trees? Well, a little while ago, we had a church camp out over here at Trinity Lake. You can see the picture there. And guess who's in the picture there? Mitchell. Yeah, that's him over there. <laughs> what do you think we like doing over at that lake? Hiking. There was some hiking. Swimming. Actually, we swam right out there. It was actually nice and warm. The water... Uh, was cold at first, but when you jumped right in, it, you got used to it. And so we would do some of that. We also went for hikes. But what else do you see here in this picture? Mules. Yeah, these mules. What? what do you think they use these mules for? This is from the Riding. Forest Service. No, well, they don't necessarily ride them. They, they could ride them, but they use them to pack things in to fix the trail or to, to bring something into a camp where they're going to be at doing fire uh, prevention. So this is, these are some of the mules. And some of you guys got to pet these mules. Yeah, which are, and that's the black. Yeah, it was the black one. It had flies all over its face and its eyes. It was pretty bad. All right, what about this one? That's a picture of the lake from way up high. We drove up on a gravel road, and we got up. We were going to go to Lake Eleanor. And on the way up, we stopped, and I could take this picture of the lake further down. That's where we were at, down at the lake, swimming there. And up there, we went for a hike, and we came across a trail. And I thought at first this was a meadow of flowers. I was like, wow, look. And then Marie's like, no, no. And she, she knew what this was. This was a picture plant. Um, I'll come up to tell you more about it in a minute here. But we went on past these plants, and we went up to a lake. But afterwards, I got to thinking about this plant. This plant is called Darlingtonia californica, or the California pitcher plant, or the cobra lily, as some people call it. You might be wondering why it's called the cobra lily. But uh, these guys grow, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, but they grow in poor acidic soil. Usually there's, it's boggy, so some water has flown into there and then has flowed into there, and then it's, it's kind of gotten bogged down. But you know why they eat bugs? These guys, they actually eat bugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, uh, they consume nutrients from bugs, I should say. Since, they don't really eat them. Well, they get sun and they get water, but they don't get enough nutrients from that boggy area. Mm -hmm. And so we walked right past them. You can see up close here what they look like. And you can kind of see it almost looks like little holes in the roof of the uh, plant there. And they have a, this coming down here is called their fangs. And I'll tell you more about the fangs in a minute here. If you're a bug, you don't want to get near the fangs. Yeah, because they eat you. Or at least you don't want to follow up the fangs. And so we kept hiking, and this is Lake Eleanor. If you've never been up to Lake Eleanor, it's, it's there in the Trinity Alps area, and that's what, that was the lake we were there. But as I was sitting there eating lunch, I would think every once in a while about those plants. Those are weird-looking plants. I saw them up in Oregon, but, and Marie told me they were pitcher plants, but I thought, what in the world are those plants even good for? I mean, I know they eat bugs and keep the bug population down, but maybe there's a lesson about God in those plants, or maybe there's a lesson about Satan's way of doing things in those plants. So I learned about the cobra lily. I wrote down some things here. This one guy named Barry Rice, he said that the cobra lily lure bugs in and help them make all the wrong decisions once they get in close to the cobra lily. How do you think that is? I'll show you the picture. Right, this picture here shows you. This is actually the dried up fangs 
but you can see a vein kind of going, almost looks like a vein going up here and there on the bottom. That has nectar on it. Okay? When this thing is green down there, the nectar draws the bug up, and the bug comes up underneath the plant here. There's a little opening, and the bug goes into the opening, thinking there's going to be more nectar and everything, maybe pollen or whatever. And they get inside of this pitcher area here. And do you see how you can almost see through it there? It kind of almost looks like little windows. They think that all those little windows are the openings. And so they bang up against that, trying to get out, thinking, oh, how do we get out of here? They get confused. And then something happens when they get tired. Hey. Because of all those false exits, they kind of they get down to the bottom here, and they, then they crawl around, and they drop down this, the tube of the plant here. And guess what the plant has down there to keep them down there? Well, it's a trap. So what happens is these hairs that go but even so, they have along the side of the tube basically a, a lubricant that keeps the bugs sliding down. Now, the Bible says the righteous don't slide, won't be, won't be taken down or slide down, but they slide down there, and they get down to the bottom here. And you think the plant has a stomach or something to eat them, but the plant doesn't have a stomach down there. The plant has organisms. Some used to think it secreted juices of some kind, but the Davis fellow said that actually there are some symbiotic organisms, kind of like what you have bacteria and things inside of an animal that digest plants. Well, they have something like that down there that co cooperates with them and, and then releases the nutrients that those organisms get. The plant absorbs those. But I thought, wow, it really didn't teach me about Jesus that much, did it? No, I think it taught me about something else. Because of the false exits, I started thinking about this plant. I started thinking, well, Jesus said many false Christs and many false prophets will come and deceive many people. And if we don't know him, we could, what if we got really who was trying to lead us astray? And eventually, they kind of trailed us along and then brought us to a place where we were far from Jesus. Maybe we decided to walk leaning towards death, wouldn't we? And so I thought, well, it starts out looking good. It starts out seeming fine with those, those fangs coming down and that nectar and the bugs go up and then they get in close proximity inside the thing and they can't get out. I thought, well, maybe that's teaching me about how Satan works, how he gets us away from Jesus, gets us into a place where we feel trapped. Then we kind of give up and we fall down and we, we kind of go down to that opening down there. And that's why this week I was reading the Bible in Mark 13 in my devotionals. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard. Hold fast to my words. All of this type of thing. And so the plant teaches us a lesson. And as you see all those plants out there, if you ever see them, it's telling us, do not be lured away from Jesus. No matter what, stay knowing him, trusting him and keep focusing on him. When your parents talk about him, be thankful they're talking about him. When they're reading stories about him, when you're reading stories about him, say, wow, I'm going to know you more, and keep focusing on him, because there's a lot of other things you can focus on. There's a lot of other plants out there that uh, the bees could be going to and all of that, but they go over here, and they get focused on this, and then they go to their deaths. And so we need to focus on the things that he wants us to focus on and not be lured away from him. So I'm going to pray that God will guide you in your lives, not just for today, but I want to pray that he'll guide you each day until you see him. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you warn us through nature, you teach us through nature, but you can warn us 
And the warning here is stay focused on you. Don't be lured away. Don't be lured into a trap that would take us to our deaths. And so we know that the Bible is our guide, that it's what we need to eat and to focus on spiritually. And so guide us to spend time learning about you in the Bible, learning about you and stories and things about you. And guide each child here to learn about you in such a way that they will be with you in the earth made new, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, thank you for the reminder in nature of our need of you. And Jesus has shown us the way, the truth, and the life. And so now as we look at his message to Laodicea, guide us to see clearly the steps that we each should take individually and corporately to be united together with you in the earth made new. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, I've had to move a few times. And one of the times I moved, I considered it for a while there until I moved to California. Uh, I considered it one of my worst moves. Uh, you might say, well, why is that? Well, I was at seminary, and I was sitting next to an unnamed pastor. Um, I won't name him because he might be listening. But he said, I want to get out of seminary early. I want to go out and pastor and be in the field and maybe do some classwork on the side. Do you think that they could ever take the, the Masters of Divinity program and, and transition us from being on campus to off campus? So here you can picture these two guys sitting next to each other on a bench in front of the seminary. And I said, I think there might be a way. And I walked him through a process that he could go through. I didn't plan on doing it. I had bought a mobile home, and I had planned to stay through the whole program, sell the mobile home, and, and you know, make a little profit, and then move on. But he contacted the conference president. <clears throat> I won't name the conference, but he contacted the conference president. The next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call saying, we have a place for you down in southeast Kansas. We want you to, after you get done with your field school up in in other words, working with an evangelist up in Oregon, Medford, Oregon. We want you to pack up and move down there. I said, well, I have, I have a house, I have this mobile home I want to sell, and, and we haven't lived in it very long. I'd like to kind of recoup some, some on it and fix it up a little bit more. And No, we want, we, we're going to send you a letter, and we want you to go there. So, you know, when you're first starting out, you really don't have a choice. You know, you could be transferred, you could be moving on without your choice. I sense he was respectful of the idea of me staying, but he's like, we want you. We need you down there. So I get the letter, and we begin the process of moving. We went down to southeast Kansas looking for a house. We, couldn't, we really went into the idea of buying. We wanted to rent first, then buy. So we found an apartment, got family situated. And as you know, you're going to eventually go get your stuff. My stuff's in Michigan. And so I remember the day when we went up to Iola and ate the Taco Bell. Okay. This is no defamation against them, but for whatever reason, as I was on my trip the next day, driving from southeast Kansas up across the Midwest to Michigan, I started having severe sweating, stomach cramps, uh, began to feel like throwing up, and I was holding onto the steering wheel, just thinking, Lord, I just want to get up there, at least get up to Michigan before I, I succumb to whatever this is. But it wasn't to be. I remember that evening as I was driving, I couldn't handle it anymore. I, it was just, the pain was, felt like it was spreading. And you know how when one part of your body suffers, the rest of it, it just, I was just miserable. I had a full tank of gas and I was going to keep on going, but I couldn't. And I began thinking to myself, there was some kind of remedy. There was some kind of remedy. What was it? 
Charcoal, charcoal. I remember Marie's mom using charcoal for some things, like you know, some poison or something to help with your body. And so I pulled over to Walmart. I went into the store, and I'm kind of keeling over as I go in, <laughs> holding back whatever is in there. And I, I'm looking up and down the aisles. And if you're sick and you're disoriented because of everything you're going through, you just kind of feel foggy, you know? That's what I, I just couldn't find this stuff. And before I could find it, it all came out right there in the middle of the aisle. I was so embarrassed. I thought, I have never done something like this before. And I walked, I wiped off my face. I walked towards the bathroom. On the way, I saw somebody. I said, on aisle something down there, you're going to find, you're going to find uh, some throw up. I'm going to the bathroom. And so I went to the bathroom. And, and as you know, with these types of conditions, it comes out both ends. And so that all started happening. Eventually, feel somewhat relieved. I get back over there to the right aisle. I find the cure. It wasn't that brand. I grab the bottle. I get through the checkout line. I'm sweating still again. I pop pills as soon as I get out of the store. And, and eventually I find a hotel and kind of keel, uh, curl up in a ball for the night, back and forth from the restroom to the bed, popping more charcoal every once in a while, just thinking, I got to get this thing out of me. By morning, it was totally over with. That was the cure, really. I needed something to take away the toxins. I needed something to deal with this foreign agent that came into my body, if you will. But as I think back on that experience, couldn't we call this the parable of vomit? Because, and I had a whole sermon one time on vomit after this happened. Uh, so I'm not going to bore you with that one. But I thought about this. Let's list some things about this particular disease I had. You can go on to different websites from our government in WebMD and, and find what this could have been. But I, in, in general terms, something was introduced to the body that was a contaminant. Okay? You could say, well, it's a bacteria, it's a this, it's a medical people. You could go ahead and analyze it a lot, worse, a lot more than I could. But something was introduced, and for whatever reason, my body could only handle so much, and eventually it reacts, doesn't it? That's what's happening there. The body's reacting to this. Body, body has a policy it follows as far as how to get rid of this stuff. And you know, because every time you get something like this, it, it, has a, it keeps doing the same thing over and over again. The sweats, the, you know, the getting rid of it, ejecting it. But as I thought about those three points, something being introduced that's contaminating the body, something that the, at a certain point the body has to react to, I started thinking about the church. At least this week, that's what I thought about. Are things being introduced into the church that can contaminate the body, that could harm the body? I started making a list ever since my college days. I started noticing there was the questioning of the authority of the church, which is happening right now to a fever pitch. I noticed back then and even now criticism of the Bible and those who try to point to the Bible. They're simplistic. They don't have proper theology, whatever. I've noticed anti-creation views for many years now. I've noticed anti-cross teachings. You say, well, what are those? Well, we'll get to them in a minute. I've noticed that we even get to the point where you say, well, killing of infants, yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about a situation when the mother's health is in jeopardy. I'm talking about a situation where of convenience. I'm talking about Sabbath being lightly regarded by many. And I could go on and on. That's what the etc. is there for. On and on and on. And you say, well, how is that harmful to the body? 
Well, I'm going to tell you why I believe we're in a time when the body needs to react. Not just in a haphazard way, but I believe it's, in a, it's dire because as I read the scriptures, as I read Matthew 25, especially Revelation chapter 3, there is a time when the Lord himself comes knocking on the door of his church. And what he sees causes him to want to vomit. To throw, spew it out, the Greek is pretty clear. It's almost like vomiting. I believe Jesus will react. We're his body, but he will react. And if you wonder what I'm talking about, there are teachings that have contradicted the Bible that I think we need to be aware of. First of all, if we start saying that final authority resides in certain entities of the church and they have no way of, of holding each other accountable, then we separate ourselves from each other. And the progression that I have seen, at least introduced to me, is that eventually the pastor is the theologian. And you can look at my sermons and see I'm not a perfect theologian, right? But the pastor establishes theology instead of the general conference. The pastor in the local church have the final authority on membership and baptism. The union has final authority on ordination. The conference has final authority on employees. And what ends up happening is a severing of the general conference from the rest of the body. I have had this introduced to me in class. Okay, so you say, well, how is that detrimental? Because it undermines the authority of having a worldwide church. In other words, we are one body. Whether you're a Seventh-day Adventist here, or like we saw in the video, these guys singing these songs a cappella. When I was in Africa, those type of people came and sang to me when I was in Africa. We're one body. And so when we start saying, well, we don't have to be held accountable to each other, then we start undermining the teaching of a body that Jesus talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 through Paul. And we start undermining the mission of the church because the church has a worldwide mission in Matthew 28. So that's why I'm saying is, that it's not just picking on, well, the, the certain segments are making wrong decisions. It's, it begins to be a severing, and that's my concern. Not that I believe that we should have a top-down type of authority. We should have a, a sense of authority that's widening and more, has more responsibility as you go out. We're, we're equals, if you will, but there is wider spheres of authority, and we all answer to the same God. So when that's questioned, I believe... Those two teachings of Jesus, it's a false teaching, but it's really a rejection of Jesus himself. Then when it comes to criticizing the Bible, I have heard people say that we should um, not be so particular in some ways that we interpret Scripture. Well, the problem is, is that once we start picking and choosing, and I understand there are some things in the Old Testament that I don't completely have answers for. I have partial answers, though. I'm okay with destructions of some nations. You say, well, how can you be? Because I've studied their culture and their religions, and I know what they did to the children. All right, so if you're okay with that type of behavior of children being abused, women being misused, all of that, and you say, well, that's Israelite culture too. Well, what we find is God's bringing them out of that culture, and you, you find a revealing of truth as they go along, making them more and more like Christ until they see the perfect day. So Israel wasn't perfect either, but what I'm saying is there are some things I don't have perfect answers, answers for, but I have partial answers for that does not give me, me the privilege or the, I guess it wouldn't be the privilege, it would be the prerogative to start taking apart other parts of Scripture and criticizing this one's part's inspired, that part is inspired. That was only for their day. There are principle-based approaches to interpreting Scripture that lean towards higher critical method. 
So I believe that all things testify of Jesus. Isn't that what we find on the road to Emmaus? We find that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, he shared with them all the things concerning himself. And 2 Timothy says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's useful in the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly finished, equipped, thoroughly furnished, equipped for every good work. So as I think about that one there, it's really not an attack on the Bible. It's really an attack on the Lord. And then when it comes to criticizing God's messengers. We find that they did the very same thing in the nation of Israel's history, and eventually they erect these, these monuments to them. We have monuments to all kinds of founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, but a lot of times we're willing to criticize how God led in their lives and their history, and their words. And, their, and I know they weren't perfect human beings. They were learning just as we were. But I find in the scriptures that prophetic guidance was there in every age. In the days of Noah, Noah comes along and builds this ark. you got Methuselah and others there. They're all there. Some of them die before the flood. But they had a message to prepare the people for that coming flood. And we find all the way down through time, there are prophets along the way. And I believe that God did use Ellen White as a prophet. I'm not saying it's a test of fellowship. But what I'm saying is, it's something that God has used. She is somebody that God has used to guide this movement. And we see in Ephesians chapter 4 that that gift will be present until we all come into perfect unity. We're not there yet. We're not going to be there as a world until Jesus comes and does away with the things that are hindering that from happening until a new earth, really. God's people can be perfectly united in a way, but you have a world that's not. And so I don't believe that text in Ephesians 4 is totally fulfilled until the second coming of Jesus, until a separation occurs, a harvest occurs. In Revelation 12 and Revelation 14 and 19 are very clear. Right down to the end pages of Revelation, you find that God will send messengers to bring his people back to the Bible. I don't agree with the anti-creation views. Ron was talking about the six-day creation and how there are so many things that testify to a younger earth than what maybe some believe. I was just thinking the other night, you know, I studied astronomy for a semester under a professor and they didn't believe in the six-day creation, but they gave enough evidence from what they presented for me to think, wow, you just show me that even if you think that these planets way out there are light years away, and so it took you know, millions and billions of years for that light to get over here, based on where, which planet you're talking about, then you just showed me that God's creation is older than all of us anyway, even if you go that route, right? We don't know how long these stars have been sitting out there burning for, and we're using human measurements to try to figure it out, and we're finite. We all know we're finite. If there's anybody who doesn't make a mistake every once in a while, raise your hand, because I like to, I like to see what, what goes on in your life. You know? You know? No one ever trips, no one ever falls, no one ever gets sick. No, I mean, there's things that happen in our lives that, that show that we are not perfect. We are finite. Whereas we look out in creation, it shows us that there's an author that is infinite. And so I would agree with the astronomer professor on that, but I don't agree with the anti-creation views that are out there. The Bible doesn't agree with them. Lightly regarding Sabbath as a day of making other people work instead of ourselves, making, you know, there's a lot of things as far as lightly regarding the Sabbath. I'm not saying that you, you can't put your foot in the water. I'm not, I'm not getting into that at all. I'm just saying it's a, it's a day of refreshing in the Lord. It's a day where we recognize, and it's not just an Old Testament commandment. We know this for a fact, right? Jesus himself said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You get to Hebrews and it says there remains a Sabbath rest and it goes on and it talks about how 
there's a day of salvation. Some people say, yeah, see, look, the Sabbath was done away at the cross when Jesus died for our salvation. No, it's teaching us that the crucifixion of Jesus points you back to the creation of this world and points you forward to a new creation. It's really, the cross is a pointing, a day that points to the Sabbath, not against it. It's a, it's a day of focusing on what Jesus has done for us. That's why we rest. We recognize that we cannot save ourselves. Jesus did that. He rested in the tomb on the Sabbath. Why did he have to rest in the tomb on the Sabbath? Say, well, he was pretty beaten up. He needed the rest, right? No, it's, he did that on purpose, just like he did it on purpose at the beginning of creation. And so we think of the cross. The cross does not undermine the Sabbath. The cross actually points to the Sabbath. Sabbath is a day where we focus on our Creator and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Teachings that undermine marriage and the family. I could go through a whole list of those. But the, the most blatant ones are unfortunately, not being stood up against. You know, cohabiting. Let's just, be, let's just be frank about it. Living together without being married. There were years ago when that would be taboo. And now, I, I've come across people, older and younger, that are willing to do that. You know, the divorce rate is around 80% if they actually ever do get married. But they don't recognize that. And even if so, how can you cohabit fill out a form, and I came across a couple one time, they were older, we have to cohabitate so we can survive financially. They got their money and I got my money, their pension, my pension, whatever, and if we put down on the form that we're married, then we lose some of our benefits. I said, well, what are you putting down on your form? That you're not married. That you don't have a spouse. What does everybody else see around you when you come out of the apartment? See you holding hands. They've seen you kiss. According to the state, you're basically, you're a couple. And you're putting on the form that you're not a couple. You're lying. I mean, you think I'm harsh. I mean, look at Malachi 3. We read that. But if you look at Malachi chapter 3, then you'll see how the Lord feels when all of this is happening. Malachi chapter 3, if you keep reading that chapter, you'll find that the Lord says, you have been harsh with me. How does the Lord feel when he is established as a foundation stone, if you will, a creation, the Sabbath and marriage, as reflections of him. And we have a culture that basically says it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter if you're cohabiting. It doesn't matter if you marry somebody of the same gender or, or one who's, who's dressed up like a, the same gender. It, it, this is what society's telling us. And I have worked with individuals who have those struggles as far as their orientation. And the best thing to do is to, to encourage them in the Lord to talk about what Paul says about remaining celibate, to talk about how God can give you that power, that your, your real focus is the Lord. If we start undermining that and saying other things, then what are we saying to them? And then what are we saying in the church? If we don't hold that behavior accountable, then you can come to me as a cohabiting couple and say, well, they brought in a, a, somebody who was a lesbian, therefore you need to bring me in. I have immorality, they have immorality. And I have nothing as a pastor to really stand on if we don't stand against that. So I do. I would just say, well, you can go down to that church. But, but then if a lawsuit comes, then the, the precedent is already set there. So we have some things that we need to talk about as far as, as a church and as a conference regarding that matter. But undermining marriage, you know, even the divorce rate among married individuals is, is high. I mean, I could have Addie come up here and tell you some of those things. I mean, these things we see 
What's going on there? Now, I think there's a lot of dysfunction, and, and sometimes we don't see it until we even get into the relationship. There's a lot of things we don't see that are contributing factors to these things. And I'm not going to be spending the whole sermon on that. I'm just saying that there, there is an ideal, and God would like to see that even flourish in these troublesome times. He understands when it can't happen, when things do take place that are problematic and sad. But there is still, that does not discount that there is still something in the Scriptures for that. As far as addictions and other things, I believe the cross proves that even death itself can be conquered. Look at Colossians chapter 1. It says the handwriting ordinances that was against us was nailed to the cross. They think, well, that's the law, or that's this, or that's that. Well, if you look at the ancient times, what it was was the inscription above your head, what the charge was that was against you was nailed to the cross. Not just the ceremonial laws and all that. We're talking about your guilt, your shame, all of that, Paul is saying, everything you've ever struggled against, every sin that you've ever committed in action or in thought, Jesus had it nailed to the cross. He died for that. So to say that someone cannot overcome that someone, I was born into alcoholism. Does that mean that I should just get topsy whenever I want to? Does that mean that my wife and kids should suffer abuse? Uh, I mean, think about, I know my human nature. If I got drunk all the time, I would be just a loose cannon all the time. Just like my dad and my granddad and my great-granddad. To tell me that I cannot overcome that. It's, I, can, I know it's going to be something that I need to watch out for, t- certain temptations the rest of my life, because there are generational things and all of that. But I believe the cross proves that we can overcome, that we can be victorious. Otherwise, what are all these promises in Revelation for? It says that to him who overcomes. And so as I think about what's coming into the church, and this is not even a whole list. We did that whole iceberg series and we talked about this. There's a whole lot more that I could list, but think about all of that. How does Jesus feel when his words are lightly regarded? How would you feel if you tell somebody something and you're the expert on that subject and they say, I don't care what you say. I mean, I, I know how I would feel. I'd be like, well, okay. And then you see the consequences of their actions. And the human nature is like, oh, I told you so. But, but deep down, if you really have love for that person, sadness comes. Just be honest, sadness comes. If you send a messenger, Jesus told the parable of sending people to his vineyard, and what do they do to those people? They beat him or killed them. And then eventually the son himself comes, and because that precedent was set, then they're willing to even reject the son. How does the, how does the father and the son feel about that? Well, they're like, kill them all, you know? That's, a, that's the respondents in his audience said, but... Imagine how the father and the son, how the father feels when now that his own son has been killed. And if you've been a father or a parent or around kids, imagine that child that you deeply feel attached to being killed because somebody wanted to get at you. Now, how would that make you feel? I think I'd feel angry. I mean, let's be honest. I would feel angry about that. They're wanting to get to me. Well, then come and deal with me. But I sent my son to you, and you killed him. To get to me. That shows that there's a deep separation in a relationship for that type of vindictiveness to be in a relationship. And so as I think of these things coming that are already in the church, and you as people who've been in the church longer than I have, you know that there's a lot more I could list. That would be upsetting, to say the least. And my opening parable would be apt 
eventually the body would react. Eventually, there would need to be a cure applied or the opposite. So what will Jesus do if the church keeps rejecting him? Those teachings, you say, well, doctrine doesn't matter. I've heard that from people at evangelistic seminars when we talk about the Sabbath, but now I'm hearing that in the Seventh-day Adventist church. So now you're getting your issues in Adventism segment here. So what does that tell me? Well, I'm reading in Timothy that Paul counsels a young preacher, watch out for doctrines taught by demons. There are, there are teachings of demons, so then that means there's true teaching. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So what, what are we rejecting? We're not rejecting the teaching, we're rejecting the person. So what would Jesus do if we keep rejecting him? What will happen if we look at, and another one, what will happen if I look at all those problems I'm listing up there all the time? Do you know why I keep preaching about focusing on Christ? Because if I focus on all those problems, I become negative. I become repulsive to Jesus myself. So my goal of this sermon is not to focus on all those problems. It's just saying they're there, and it's a rejection of Jesus. And if I focus on those things and criticize the Bible and all of that, or if I criticize those who criticize the Bible, and I have a habit, I'm on the same type of trajectory away from Jesus. So what will happen if we look at the problems more than we look at him? What will happen if we reject him over and over again? The same thing. We're found in the seven churches of Revelation, as we get down to the end here, the church is seen as being unfaithful. You say, well, how could that be? Think about the analogy of marriage in the Jewish society. Think about, especially you look at Song of Solomon and, and King Solomon, he had multiple wives, right? We know that. That's not the ideal. But as we're looking at, he would come by the bridal chamber or the place where one of his wives was at. And we think, well, he's just going to barge in the door and say, here I am, and I'm here, you know, and all of this, fulfill all his desires. But you find there is a protocol, even for a king. Go read about it in the Old Testament. They would approach their spouse in a certain way. There was respect, there was this bond. In fact, there was a huge respect for women in the Israelite economy. If you don't believe that, I've got sources I can show you that. There was a huge respect. We focus on some of these instances where there wasn't, but, but women had rights. Women had marital rights as well as... as, as property rights and other things. You can read about this in the Old Testament and you can read about it in historians' writings. But what would happen if the king comes up to his bride, knocks, goes through the whole protocol, and she never answers? I mean, he's supporting her through vineyards and different things like that, uh, farmland and wars and, and, and trying to provide for, all, for his wife and, and for his children and for the royal family, and he keeps knocking comes back again the next day, keeps knocking over and over again. I mean, how long is that going to go on before he figures there's something up? Either she's in there dead, I mean, she's dead, right? Or, or sick, or you know, that, that's one thing if she's sick or whatever, but, but I want to come in and have a meal with her. I'm not here for what society thinks I should be here for. I'm here to know my wife and to keep our relationship strong, and she's not opening the door. Eventually, he would think infidelity. Something is going wrong in there. So when we get to the church of Laodicea, don't think of, well, the pastor's going to give an altar call today and, and Jesus is coming to you for the first time and saying, if you haven't accepted him, accept him. That's part of it. We can use it that way. But the message really is, he's coming to the church. He's knocking. He's saying, will you let me in? Will I be accepted among you? Can I sit down and have sup with you? Can I eat with you? Know you. Be your friend and you mine. After a while, like I said, infidelity will take place. And if you wonder if this has to do with judgment, it clearly does. You go to 1 Peter in your Bible, please. 
And some of these texts will be up on the screen. This one is not. 1 Peter chapter 4. Years ago when I was a new Christian, I memorized this text. I wondered why I did it. I, I, I did it because of a sense of urgency. That if judgment first begins at us, what will, will the end be of those who obey not the gospel of Christ? It was like, I better get out there and witness for the Lord, right? But as I kept reading this text, there's more to it. 1 Peter chapter 4, 15 through 17. He's talking about fiery trials. He's talking about rejoicing in sufferings. He's talking about having reproach for Christ's sake. And he talks about people being blaspheming Christ. But verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, he, and then here's a quotation. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. This idea of judgment and faithfulness to Jesus, yes, it's talking about witnessing and, and somehow taking the gospel to others, but the main idea is remaining faithful to your Creator. There's a time of judgment that begins first at the house of the, of, of the Lord, or of God, of the church, and that's what we get into when we get to the message of Laodicea. It's a time of infidelity. It's a time when God is saying, I'm coming to my house. The question is, will it be left desolate or will it be left a place where he abides? And so the bridegroom knocks. That's the title of the sermon. And as he knocks, some churches are shutting the doors to him and saying, well, no, I don't accept the Old Testament. I don't accept all those things I talked about. In some way or another, they're pushing him away. Others have a critical spirit, and for whatever reason, the Lord is not able to come into the church because you get a whole church of critical people, and it's very difficult to work with and reach out, especially. I've seen that. And so the door gets shut in his face. All those examples, and eventually judgment to them all. Not in a sense of, of I'm mad at you, I'm going to take you out and razor strap you. Who really razor straps their children anyway that they really love? And if you spank your children and you think that somehow it's, it makes you feel good to do it, I, I don't know who you are, but when my children disobey, it really hurts me to have to spank. If I have to spank them to get their attention, it really hurts me. And most of the time I find myself not giving the full treatment that I felt like I was going to give at the beginning. I, like, I'm hugging the kid. I feel like I'm going to cry with the kid. I mean, are we talking about God here that's going to come along and just nuke people? No, we're talking about a God of love who actually is coming to his church repeatedly I'm knocking, I'm knocking, I'm knocking. It hurts me, it hurts me. And so as I talk about judgment with you, I'm not talking about it in a harsh way. I'm talking about it in a loving way. Because Laodicea itself means justice of the people or judgment of the people, depending on which way you want to translate. The Greek lends itself more of the latter, judgment of the people. It was a town located on the river honoring Zeus, so it was a, originally not a very good place. It was, as we know, some of this information... It was of little importance until after Rome got a hold of it. And towards the end of the Roman Republic, under the first emperors, it comes about and becomes an advantageous town because it's got a trade route. It's got uh, large money transactions taking place, this, this trade of black wool, all of this. It was a religious place. We find evidence of churches there as well. We find 
water source. We know about that water source, which is kind of foolish because they were right near a river anyway, but they had this water source piped in. We know about their comforts, and we know about, especially look at this pool here, the hot springs they had there. They had all the comforts eventually. They had all the prestige. They had the trade route. They had everything in their, in their mindset. And as I read about that, and as I especially thought about the hot springs, I thought, almost reminds me of North America. We're very comfortable here, aren't we? we you know, this message to Laodicea would be preached a whole lot differently if I preached it in Africa than in North America. In Africa, I'd be talking about holding fast to Jesus, opening up to Jesus. The whole bridal thing would be the main theme. Here, it's, we're so comfortable that I have to say something to get our attention, my attention and your attention. That judgment's going to take place. I've got to focus on that. And I think in North America, we have to be extra careful because we are so comfortable here compared to the rest of the world. And I know things are going to get more uncomfortable, but right now is the time for us to consider this message. So if you think about the message of judgment, we're thinking about Laodicea, the people of the judgment or the people that are judged, and now we read the message. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Loaded with words, I don't have time to get into all of them, but who is the one coming to them? The Amen. You go to Isaiah 65, look it up sometime. It mentions the God of the Amen, or as it's translated, God of the truth. The one who is the true witness is what, how. So if you look at the Hebrew way of thinking, the Amen, that's the, that's the one who's the truth. Truly. If you say the word Amen, Amen, you're saying, yeah, truly, I agree with that. Verily, yeah, that's right, I agree with that. But it's also underscored or repeated by saying the true witness. So it's compounding. It's saying, if there ever was a witness like this, there was never a witness like this, if there ever needed to be a true witness, this is the one. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. This is the one who is the beginning of all creation. Jesus says in John chapter 5, that all judgment was given to him. He's the judge, and we're judged by his words and his works. You say, well, judged by works? Oh, no, that's scary. I... It's not scary if you're in Christ. If you're out of Christ, it's a whole other story. But if you know Jesus as your friend, you want to emulate him, you want to follow him, you want to look at his words and then see how he's acting towards people, then that's, that's a, heaven just sees his record. And there is a part we play. You say, well, there's no part. We surrender daily. We daily learn of him. And there's choices we have to make along the way. So he's our witness and he says in John chapter 5, <clears throat> basically, <clears throat> you've never seen the Father or heard his voice because you won't accept my words. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He's saying, it's an accusation, saying, here's all the scriptures you know. They talk about me, but you won't accept me. And so we have to know him and the Father. That's, that's the witness that's against us. Do we know him? Do we know his words, his works? I know we could spend all kinds of time on these other sources, Researching, I could bring articles to you about all kinds of stuff, but I'm trying to focus you on his words and his works. We'll talk about the end of time. We'll talk about how it relates to Christ. That, we're going to get to that, but it's a matter of if you don't know his words and his works, then what I share with you, his words from Matthew 24, they won't come to you as from Christ. They will come to you as from a stranger. Fearful, loathing, no hope. I could easily share a sermon like that. And years ago, I shared sermons like that. Made you just made me cringe and others cringe. Man, it was just, I've been there. 
and there is an element of respect and fear we should have as far as we're living in solemn times. But he gives us so much encouragement in his last words that we should focus on them. He's the beginning of creation. Some say, well, that means he was created. No, it's actually one of those terms that goes back to the idea of a, a magistrate or ruler. You get the same word that's attached to the synagogue ruler. You know, the synagogue ruler, the beginning of the synagogue, he really wasn't the beginning of the synagogue. He's just, he's just the basically overarching one who's in charge of the synagogue. Okay, the same RK word is used for the synagogue ruler, RK of the synagogue. And what he's saying is he has authority over creation. And so the judgment of the people is undertaken by the creator himself who bears witness against his church. It's him bearing witness. And those of the false church, eventually as we progress from Revelation 3 onward, those of the false church will get to the point where they won't hear these words at all and they get so beastly that they will even kill one another. First they'll try to kill God's people and then eventually they turn on each other at the end of time. So I don't want to be amongst that group. And I don't want this to progress any further for me. I want to be able to say, you know what, Lord? You are true. Amen. You are true. You're the true witness. You know everything. You made me. I'm trusting in you. This must be at the end of time, this message. Some people say the seven churches talk about seven time periods. And I think this must be at the end of time because it has something to do with judgment. And we know that judgment in the Israelite economy especially took place at the Day of Atonement. So since 1844, this is especially applied to the church. You could probably do a historical study. It would be interesting to, for someone to do that to see what some of the reactions were to the prophetic message of 1844, the Sabbath, things that developed after 1844 with the other churches in the United States. Originally, it was noted as one of the greatest revival periods under Willie Miller of all time. If you look at the number of people that believed Jesus was coming soon, two-thirds of the population at the time, it, it, it makes Moody and the rest of them seem so small. But yet, nobody says that anymore. It's like, since 1844, it was a joke. It was, Jesus didn't come, all this. And they make fun of it, instead of saying, well, maybe there was something we should have learned from that. So if you do a historical study, you will find that a lot of churches in North America rejected piece after piece of what God could have revealed to them from that point on. And so it's no wonder we're in the condition we are today. And it's no wonder that people are looking to the state to enforce now the morality that they even have left in churches. And so I think this is pretty clear. As we, if a church is in that condition and its judgment is going to take place on the church, then that's taking place at the end of time. And we know from Revelation 14 that a judgment hour message goes out and then the harvest. So this is right before the end where the church is being talked to. But what causes him nausea? Well, we'll keep going in the text, but I'm going to put something up that clarifies this. Those whom Christ warns have some excellent qualifications but they are neutralized by all who have a diseased self, self-deception, self-justification, for gross neglect to help the brethren in the service of God by encouraging words and deeds. That's a whole huge sentence there. You can unpack it. But basically, he warns those who have excellent qualifications but are neutralized by these types of individuals. He tells them there is a dead fly in the ointment. He tells the result of actions which demonstrate that the love of Christ is not abiding the abiding principle in the soul. God calls upon you all to learn from Christ's meekness. Put away your faculty for seeing the mistakes of others. So say you are going the right way. You know? And you see all this stuff happening. Put away that. And don't get involved in that critical spirit. 
Turn your attention to your own defects. Your self-righteousness is nauseating to the Lord Christ. So both groups in this, in this quotation are nauseating. Those who are self-focused, disease, self-love, gross neglect going on, and those maybe who have excellent qualifications but are being neutralized by all this negativity. And he says this, this whole environment is nauseating. She says this is nauseating to the Lord. She says many are Laodiceans living in a spiritual self-deception. They clothe themselves in the garments of their own righteousness. Their own righteousness. Imagining themselves to be rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. When they need daily to learn of Jesus. Daily. His meekness and lowliness, else they find themselves bankrupt. Their whole life. Imagine this. Imagine getting to the end and finding out your whole life was a lie. How would you feel about that? You just kind of lived in such a way to please other people or to look a certain way and inside you were different. That's why last week it wasn't about the clothing. What it was about was what's going on inside that reflects outside. That was the main point. And if you're something outside that you're not inside, or vice versa, it's living a lie. And so I want to be the same person if I can. And I know that's a daily struggle with me because I need to daily learn of Christ, His meekness and His lowliness. And so those on the wide right and wide left, you know there's a wide path, right? So there's a wide right and a wide left. Wide right meaning those who somehow think that they're better than the church. No one thinks that, right? Well, if you're criticizing the church, then you're in judgment of the church, and therefore you think you're better than the church. Or maybe the church isn't doing enough or whatever. That's far right. Church has a higher standard, and it's basically their own mere reflection they're looking at. And these individuals, they don't see them as struggling. Leaders struggling to make these decisions, to hold the church together. All that. I've heard people criticize the general conference. Well, you know what? And I'm not talking about the far left. I'm talking about from the far right. Basically, the church is not good enough. Well, that is far right. Far left is the other way, where the church isn't doing enough to accommodate and all these different things, for these different things going on in our culture, and, and we should really be very loving. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be loving, but basically criticizing the church for not accommodating the culture. Both of those, far right and far left, are on a path of destruction. If you're on one of those paths, one of those far extremes, you better get back to the narrow path. Because the narrow path is where Jesus is at. And I don't see him, I know he had a sermon at the end there, I know he kind of got after the leaders, but Think about the tears of Jesus when he came to confronting right at the end there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And just this whole pouring out of his soul, he just wept. Are we weeping? I don't see much weeping. So what if we have the light, but we go so, get so focused on the problems and we're far right maybe, and, and we end up not sharing? Well, we're told the message to the see in church is applicable to all who have had great light. And I could think of, Many churches that I've been to that I can, I've seen godly people in outside of the Adventist church. But what church has been given as much light as this one? I mean, you have pages after pages after pages of testimonies and visions and things to, to point you in the right direction. I, I remember when I first came in, I was like, well, the Bible's enough because I, I can't read all that. You know, there's a whole lot of other stuff. I, I, I'll, I'll check her out later because I really did not have the uh, foundation of even looking to somebody like that. I just, okay, I'll read the Bible. I read it on my own for over a year before I came into the church, and that was enough. And now here's this Ellen White. Wow, look at all of this. Look at all the, 
degrees and, and people that, who have come along as, as experts and come along and pointed us to texts about the beautiful teachings of prophecy and all this that this church has had that no one else has had. The beautiful teaching of the sanctuary, the Sabbath, the second coming. You find we have had many opportunities, but we have to appreciate them. Otherwise, this message is directly for us and saying, we're lukewarm. You could say, well, I've heard that before. Okay, well, then this one. The message to the church is applicable to our condition. She's writing in 1889. How plainly is pictured the position of those who think they have all the truth, who take pride in their knowledge of the Word of God, while its sanctifying power has not been felt in their lives. Someone who reads the Bible just as facts is no different than the higher critical scholar. If you don't know the person of the Bible when you're reading that Bible, if I don't somehow come closer to him by reading the Bible, by reading his words, then I just know facts. And I know lots of scholars out there who know facts and don't trust the Bible and don't trust the God of the Bible. You say, well, at least I'm doing it with a sincere purpose. Is it really sincere to just know, read the Bible? I used to read five chapters a day, morning and evening, and I'd listen to it as I'm driving around to, my, to the five churches in the district, and I would think, I know a lot about the Bible. But then I started thinking, why is it that my Christian experience now is less than it was when I first became a Christian? Yet I know so much. Why am I not having the abiding peace that we find written in Steps to Christ and other places? It's because I knew a lot. And I could quote a lot. And I could prove my point and debate a lot. But I did not know the one whom I was debating for. And so this is what this is talking about. It's not saying we shouldn't read the Bible, we shouldn't, but it's saying if we just read it for facts and for knowledge and to somehow prove a point that we've you know, checked something off of our list to heaven, that's, you're lost, and I'm lost, if that's what it is. The fervor of the love of God is wanting. That's what it should generate, the fervor of the love of God. But it is the very fervor of love that makes God's people the light of the world. And so the lady is seeing message, I don't care how you put these together and all the things from the Scripture... It's for us. It's saying Christ is knocking on our hearts every day, each one of us in some individual way, corporately in another way. He's knocking, and he's saying, I want to come in and know you. Will you know me? Revelation 3, verse 15 says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. That's really Satan's goal, isn't it? For us to be not really fully committed to him. I would that there were, you were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, and as I read that, I thought after seeing the history, they could have changed their source. They didn't have to pull that water out from those places and pipe it all the way in. There was a river right by their city there. They had just had to change the source. Because you're lukewarm, so Satan's goal is for us to be neither hot nor cold, to keep going down and being comfortable. And here he's saying, because you're lukewarm, and I'm thinking, just change the source. If you don't, if you, so because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee, project thee in the Greek. What is that? Vomit. Okay, I'm going to, it's nauseating. Nauseating affects the stomach. Whatever's in the stomach at the time of the spew is vomit, right? So this is vomit. And he's saying, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That means he will eject the lukewarm ones from the church. You say, whoa, that's really eisegesis. You're really reading into the text. Isn't 
the head part of the body? And whatever is nauseating to the body is the lukewarm, which he's saying the people in the church are, and therefore they go out of the church, out of the body. If you were hearing this, this is a judgment message from him, not from me. He's saying, if you're hypercritical or so loose that the culture, everything the culture says go, you'll be spewed out of his mouth. Because a hypercritical spirit actually permeates both of those groups. They will leave the body. And the only thing that will be left will be those who love the Lord, who are shining for him, who have his character, all those things that we find about in Scripture. And they will then have the water of life to share because all that other stuff is gone. But what hinders them is most, most of the time when we read texts, well, you know, it's good for brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, but no, it's a mirror. Jesus is saying, this is for you. You will find yourself so miserable without me. And then it will be too late. Just like those plants, you know, those bugs going right up into those plants, those pitcher plants that we talked about in the children's story. And eventually it's just too late. They fall right down into there. All these false exits, thinking they're going back the right way and all of that, and they're deceived, and then they fall down and give up. That's what Satan hopes with this. He hopes that we will try so hard in our own strength that eventually we will lose our strength and we will give up instead of trusting in Christ. Or we won't try at all. We won't be overcomers. We'll be miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and we will give up. And so he says, I'm telling you, I counsel you, which means to get advice, but you know how you could call on the phone and say, you know, maybe one of those hotlines that's talking about a certain condition, like if, you need, if you're dealing with somebody who's going through domestic violence, you call the number and they give you advice. It's not talking about that. It's talking about sitting down with somebody that you really care about, that you're in a relationship with, union with, oneness with, and you're literally saying, please, tell me how to deal with this. So I'm counseling you, getting advice, which implies a union with him. Buy of me. I have the whole cure for you. You can read the whole thing. You've read it before. I've read it before. I have the whole cure for you. And as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Be zealous thereof, therefore, and repent. Behold, there's that key text. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice, that's the key. Imagine the loving spouse coming and saying, let me in. I want to talk. I want to be with you. That's the plea. And that's why Jesus down in Revelation 18 says, come out of her, my people. His own voice calls out to people. Open the door. I will come in. We'll sup or eat with him. Have this meal. And he with me. A meal of promise. A covenant meal. And if not, though, I think the problem is, is that death awaits. Because as I read Revelation 16, those who remain naked at the end end up in Babylon. And the problem is, is that they get judged. And the problem is, is that there's only one fate that the Bible talks about for them. And so if you want a hellfire sermon, this is as close as you're going to get. That's the wrong road. That takes you so far away from God where you would be even be willing to kill God and his followers in a last battle. And those are the ones who remain naked at the end. And so, you know, if you think of this type, these types of diseases entering the body, you don't think of 
food poisoning killing people, right? You think, well, you're just talking about some little analogy that has nothing to do with really the seriousness of what's happening in the church. Well, I was in a, a church there in Nebraska. I was sitting in my office in this very building. And into my office came a, just a crying man. I mean, he was in tears. He was just pouring it all out. He had his wife next to him there. And they told me the story of how they were having a celebratory meal, that their baby was to be born in just a short period of time. I think it was like a, a week or two. And they went out to eat. And she got E. coli, and it went in and killed the baby. And I'm like, I had never heard. I went home and asked my wife about it. She's a nurse. And I still remember doing the funeral. It's the only funeral I've ever done with a rap song on it. Now you say, well, well you're, really, you're really way out there, Pastor. No, I listened to the rap song, and, and, and it was where they were at. I'm not saying that that's what, what I would do in a service. It was a memorial service at a funeral home. But it was a song about seeing my family together again. And, and I said, you know, you've got you to gotta blip out this word, and you've got to blip out that, and, and cut it out here and put it together, and, and then I'll, I, can, I can go with it. But, so we had this memorial service, and I still remember at the end of it, after they were done, after I'd pointed them to David and how David had been grieving over the loss of him and Bathsheba's baby and how God comforted them again and Solomon came out of it and I tried to challenge them to give God a chance and to see what good could come out of it. As soon as we're done, they're like, well, let's go get a drink. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> you know? But I thought about that situation. It echoed in my mind of, of how something can come into the body, not just affect the carrier, but the, the, the very next generation. And I thought how sad that could be. And so we have to have the cure in mind, don't we? Revelation 3 tells us, if you overcome, I will give you life. I will grant for you to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my Father in His throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. We know He has the cure in Revelation chapter 3. We know that we can come to Him because He has that beautiful, everything that we need. And He says here, you will sit down with me on my Father's throne. The beautiful throne of Revelation 14, that's the very next chapter, that's the very next verses after this. He's saying, you can be there with me if you overcome, if you choose to surrender, if you choose to seek me for your help. And that's what he says to the churches. And if we do that, I believe we're given another chance. Because I remember we moved down there to that little, that little town. And then within three months, they told me to pack up and move again. And that's one of those worst moves. Christmas time. They said, pack up and move again. And it, it was terrible just getting all the way through all that and then packing up and moving again. But I had found, of course, yeah, I told you about that. But a few years later, after they told me to move away, that same place came open again. And I said, they're like, you're ordained now. Uh, we want to really talk to you about where you like to be. And I'm thinking, why didn't they say that before? You know, just, but... Uh, I said, well, I'm going to move out west. And then, no, no, we, we want you to move. And they named a place. And I said, no, I don't know about that. And then I said, hey, I heard that you got that place open that you moved me from. And basically, I said, I heard that it's open down there. Well, why don't you send us back there? Now, that's, that's never happened again. But they did. They did. And now, I remember I was going down there to look at the church. And afterwards, I said, I don't want to go here. But they'd already voted it before I got back from looking at the church to decide. So that was a whole other thing. But I made the best of it because we found a beautiful home out in the country there. And here's a picture of our boys and, and I 
raking leaves. Now, you know who's doing the work there. Um, it kind of became a balm for my soul to go back there, to have these good memories there. And here's another one here. You can see them uh, really doing the work. Um, that was kind of the cure, these, these good memories. Going back to the same territory, the same place. And here they are, of course, doing some more work. And I thought about this. Now, here's this parable of how it all went and things kind of went bad, how things could just get worse with that other story I told you. But here he is giving me another chance to go back to the same place and have some good memories from that place. And eventually we moved out here from that place. But as I thought about that, that's exactly what he offers us. He says, you know, things may be going in this trajectory. You can come and turn to me. I'm knocking. I'm coming to you with the cure. I'm coming to you not just with the cure for what ails you here in this world, but I'm giving you the cure for eternal life, and I'm giving you memories that are going to last forever, experiences of life forevermore. And so why wouldn't I listen to his words, hold fast to his words, know his words, because the bridegroom knocks right now and he speaks. The question is, are we listening? If we listen, then our song that we've been listening to each time about him changing our name. Did you notice at Laodicea there was really not a whole lot of mention about changing the name? Well, it's kind of a given by then. It's a given. You'll be at his throne. Your name will be changed. And the goal is to have yourself picturing yourself right there with him on his throne. Isn't that a solemn thought? A happy thought, really. No more sorrow, no more pain, right there on his throne. And so it's implying that our names have been changed to be sitting there on that throne. And so as we listen to this song one more time, uh, please apply it to your life and say, Lord, this is what I need you to change in my life so that you can change my name and I can be with you forever. Because that's where we want to be. Oh
Father in heaven, we're grateful that you've sent Jesus to knock in whatever personal way that we each need here today. It could be challenging us to come back to center on some issues. It could be challenging us to stand firm. It could be challenging us to put aside all kinds of things that could cause us to be bitter or critical. But ultimately, you're challenging us to be like Jesus, who comes and says, I will sup with us, eat with us, and we will know him and he will know us. So Lord Jesus, take our hearts, help us to know you as our friend, and then help us to introduce others to you as well. Thank you for knocking. Thank you for your patience with us. We're sorry for sadness that we may cause you. And help us to bring you much joy, we pray in Jesus' name.